Okay, post-technical difficulties, I guess we should talk about what this is going to be. Uh, so the title of this radio segment is called Mediatations. Um, it's a play on words, as you do. Uh, so media, I don't know. I live in the 21st century. I'm obsessed with media, whether it's through books, movies, TV shows. Um, anything, arguably, is media. Um, and I love to talk about what I consume. So there's the media. And then meditations, uh, it was this emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he was one of the five great Roman emperors. And every night after he got through doing his emperor things, uh, he would go back to his room and he would, uh, he would talk to his scribe about all his failures of the day, things he wanted to do better. He was a hardcore stoic. The man essentially beat himself up way too much. Um, and so, yeah, every night he would talk to a scribe about things he could have done better, um, ways to be a more pure and just ruler. And it was essentially like the world's first diary. Um, and so, yeah, he wouldn't necessarily get into the nitty gritty of his life, like details. Um, there were a few wars that went on in that period. And so if you go into Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, looking for historical pointers, that's not what you're going to find. What you're going to find instead is one man who was constantly, painfully unsatisfied and was just trying to reach a more pure uh, form of honesty and justice. And so I relate a little bit to that. Is that uh, narcissistic to say that I relate to a Roman emperor? Just in that I can tend to beat myself up maybe a little too much. And I have kept a journal since I was eight years old. Um, I can't say my intentions are as noble as Marcus Aurelius. I think my intentions, whenever I go back to like, not the oldest pieces because those don't make sense uh it's about how much i eat in a day like cereal or if i jump rope that day but if i get a little bit older i get to that sweet spot of being a preteen and i guess maybe realizing my own mortality uh there's definitely a lot of entries where i talk about oh i'm so scared of being 40 and not remembering my childhood so i'll write about it which in retrospect, is kind of a weird way to be thinking as an 11-year-old, but also I was 11 when, like, Hunger Games and, like, all that weird dystopian stuff was really cool. Plus, I was raised on, um, I guess, daytime talk shows. So, like, all that Jerry Springer, uh, Wendy Williams, Maury Povich jazz, Dr. Phil, I was raised on that stuff, um, which I can't say is the best media for a preteen, um, but I think it definitely had an influence, especially about the way I think about aging, the way I think about my own mortality, essentially. Uh, actually, the older I've gotten, I think I think about it a lot less now than I did, at least when I was younger. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's the title of... Uh, the show, a little brief biography on me, your host, Ari. Um, and that's how I came to Mediatations, which is a pun, meditations, yeah. You get it. Um, okay, so when I came in here, I actually wasn't convinced that I would have radio access. So I 
<laughs> I had some technical difficulties. I actually only realized I was on air once I sneezed and I pulled up WebDCR on my uh, laptop and I heard myself sneeze. But before that, I had a very nifty uh, introduction planned. Uh, so I'd hate to see it go to waste. Um, I'm just going to read it off. It just says, hi, hi, hello, welcome to Mediatations. I'm Ari, your host. And if I ever manage to make more than two friends on campus, I'll eventually have guests on. Uh, so first, we'll talk about the title of the show. And like I said, I already talked about the title. Um, yeah, let's see. Oh, I guess I was just going to talk about, honestly, some of my more recent favorite pieces of media. Definitely one of them has been Kurt Vonnegut's No Man's Country. I read it on the plane uh, from Texas to uh, Boston. I started it and I finished it in the air, which I feel like might be symbolic of something. I don't know. Um, but I have a giant crush on Kurt Vonnegut. Well, he's dead now. But um, at the time that he wrote uh, No Man's Country, he was 82 years old. I believe it was published in 2004. And there's, uh, I guess, a brief paragraph. It's definitely not the central idea. But um, Kurt Vonnegut just, like, references climate change, and he recognizes that the world is heating up and that we're all probably going to die. And it's just so interesting to see someone back in 2004 so conscious of that when I feel like the discourse around climate change, at least in that time, there was, um, like, the first time that I ever heard about climate change, I must have been, like, maybe 10 years old, maybe nine, probably older. No. Yeah. It was around that age. Yeah. And uh, my brother and I, we used to walk to the pawn shop whenever my mom was at work. And um, this is like high key illegal, but he would take the price tags for uh, different box sets of um, South Park seasons and he would switch them. So like it should have cost uh like 11 or $9, but we would end up paying like three or four. I am sure the cashier recognized what we were doing. Um, I say we, it was mostly him. I was scared of doing it, honestly. Um, anyways, I'm sure the cashier recognized this, but also like you see two unaccompanied kids looking mischievous. They're trying to buy something that's rated M for mature audiences. The oldest one, I'm sure he must've been in like probably seventh grade. Um, and so that makes him what, like 13? I feel like the cashier just did not care. Um, anyways, we would take these box sets of uh, South Park. I can't remember what season it is, um, but there's an episode where Stan befriends, uh, what's his name? OMG, he like ran in the election against uh, George H.W. Bush. Oh, he was an advisor. Oh my God, it's going to kill me. Why can I only... Okay, the premise of the episode is that uh, he, this political figure who like, I'm literally blinking on his name, even though I know it, uh, he believes in man bear pig and he's convincing the members of the South Park community that like man bear pig is a threat and nobody takes him seriously, um, obviously, because man bear pig. Um, and so... The thing about Man Bear Pig that I didn't realize until I was much older was that Man Bear Pig was uh, a reference to um, Man Bear Pig was a reference to climate change. Uh, I'm gonna have to look it up because it's gonna bother me. 
man bear pig south park <laughs> i feel like maybe there's better identifiers for this political figure but that is what's coming to mind okay ex-vice president yeah but tell me his name al gore it was al gore i swear i applied here as a government major and i just blanked on al gore's name that is a humbling moment um yeah anyways that was the first time that i was ever conscious of climate change um with the al gore parody episode on south park honestly south park gave a lot of context uh to popular culture for me especially as a young kid um my mom doesn't speak english and so like a lot of, I guess, like that dad rock that you'll hear at uh, barbecues and stuff like that, like Green Day. I didn't have context for that stuff, honestly, until seventh grade. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's weird where in your life you pick up these like central points of uh, pop culture. Like I'm looking at a David Bowie poster right now, and I don't think I was really conscious of David Bowie until maybe like sophomore freshman year of my high school. Uh, experience. So I don't know. It's just, yeah, you pick up media at weird places. Okay, where did I start this tangent off? Oh, yeah. Um, it was Kurt Vonnegut's No Man's Country. He's conscious of climate change. I just thought that that was interesting, especially for uh, the year of 2004. Another thing that he said um, in one of the pages was just uh, that he believes that people should be critical. Uh, producing something at all times not at all times but just like making an effort to produce something especially something that takes like a concerted creative effort and so like knowing that maybe you're not the next best uh you're the not the next greatest american painter but you're still going to go ahead and paint that landscape painting even if it's like paint by the numbers um his argument is basically that you should put effort towards a creative endeavor because it's good for the soul. Not necessarily good for like, I guess, artistic purposes, um, but it's just good for the psyche. And I think I definitely relate to that. Um, like I have what, like three midterms that are like, I guess, longer forms of papers. So like for my calculus class, we're making a small textbook essentially. Um, I have a five-page paper due for my writing five, and then an exegesis essay for my government class, and those are all very, like, long forms of intense, super, like, concerted research and just writing stuff down, and am I nervous about turning that in? Yes, definitely. I'm also nervous about my, about my first article for the D newspaper, um, which is due Thursday at 2 p.m., which means I need to write it by tonight, and you know, I definitely could be spending my time working on those things. And I do spend a large part of my time working on those things. But I think sitting down, skipping my lunch, <laughs> I might start to eat at some point during the hour. Um, but yeah, skipping my lunch and just like talking to myself in a quiet room is my own form of, I guess, creativity. Like I am following the Kurt Vonnegut doctrine. I'm just going to sit down, breathe a little, create. Um, also, thankfully, no one is probably listening, so that is definitely, you know, weight off my shoulders. Um, I hope no one heard my sneeze or my meows in the beginning because that would be very, very embarrassing. Um, 
yeah, anyways, I definitely agree with Kurt Vonnegut there. I also think uh, just like a piece of personal history, since this is meditations, my meditations, um, I tend to, I guess, uh, be attracted to people who are creative, uh, which is so backwards. Like, um, I've told my friend Angela, who does like acapella and stuff like that, she's my friend, and I love it whenever we sing in the car together. She's amazing. I, on the other hand, sound like a cat getting ran over. But I, I told her one time that like one of my icks for guys is if they create art, especially like visual art, but also like if they're in a band or if they sing. I love music. I mean, everybody does. But I don't know, just something about a guy performing for you, it just, it gives me straight up the ick. And so I like creative people, but maybe not artistic people. But also that's kind of a lie. Uh, I don't know. While I've been at Dartmouth, there was one guy who played his banjo for me. But I think I was so like conscious of how uncomfortable I could make it that I was... I guess, policing my every move and every facial gesture. So I didn't let him in on that, um, I guess, second perception of what was going on. Okay, anyways, attracted to creative people, not necessarily artistic people. Um, and so what I mean by that is like, uh, who was it? Um, we'll call him Obama. Obama is what I called him. Um, because he shares a surname with Obama. Uh, there were a bunch of similarities, but honestly, I'm blanking out. But anyways, for our purposes, his name is Obama. And he actually had a podcast where he would talk about military theory, I guess, especially like medieval, but also going into like World War II. Also, a uh, reference point, any guy who is really into World War II, I'm talking really into World War II, it is a red flag and you need to run soon because I don't know. It's just, it's an odd piece of history to be obsessed with, especially guys that like go out of their way to make the most tangential thing tie into a Hitler comparison because one highly inappropriate, highly insensitive, but also unoriginal. It's the most lazy argument. There's definitely that phrase. Um, what is it? The first person to bring up Hitler just loses the argument straight up. Um, so yeah, anyways, liking World War II a little too much is a red flag. Uh, back to Obama, who wasn't that into World War II, I will say, to his defense. Um, but yeah, he had a podcast, he would talk about military theory, and I remember that whenever I, I missed him, kind of, I would listen to the podcast, and it would it'd just be nice, even if he was talking about something super, like, academic, like the crossbow or something. Um, yeah, I think the second one, is it the second one? I guess so. Uh, he was an international student. He was from Nepal, and he had a blog, and I thought it was the most sweet thing ever. He was into computer science, and... Um, he had like completely designed the blog uh, using like HTML. He was so proud of himself whenever he figured out dark mode. Um, yeah, and so he would just like publish these little essays. Um, I remember the first thing that I read of his uh, was his analysis of um, Kanye West's, I can't remember what song it is, but it's on the Life of Pablo album. And um, it was just, 
it was nice to, I guess, read about Kanye West in such like an academic tone because it felt a little bit silly, but I could feel that like, he's not writing this for a class. He's not writing this for anyone else but himself. And here I am consuming the media that this guy is putting out and just enjoying it. Um, I do remember <laughs> that I, I guess I tend to have a critical eye whenever I'm reading other people's writing. It's difficult, especially when you like the other person. But I remember I would notice that like in all of his introductory paragraphs, he would use the word proclivity. And it was funny because at, at the time when I read this, I didn't know what proclivity meant. Um, and so I had to look it up and I thought, oh, he's too smart for me. Um, anyways, whenever things ended and now I use the word proclivity, either like in conversation or for an essay, I always think about him, not necessarily in like a romantic, like, oh, I miss you, way, but just like, you know, that's where the story of me and the word proclivity began with this random exchange student from Nepal. Or no, no, he was an exchange. He was just international, but yeah. Um, it's weird, those little impacts, I guess, that you can have on people's lives. And I'll never tell him that he taught me the word proclivity, but I know. And I guess it's it's also interesting to imagine that he doesn't know. Um, there's definitely a third guy at some point who was a producer or something. Oh, I guess, ooh, before I came to Dartmouth, I went on a date with a guy who had a podcast. His podcast was supposed to be a comedy podcast. He had it with one of his other friends. Um, it was called like, oh, I guess I'm going to out myself here. <laughs> well, honestly, he needs the, I guess, help getting his podcast out there. It was called like Sandwich Brothers or something, Peanut Butter and Jelly Brothers. I, I really do not know. I remember I tried to listen to an episode and I was just not interested. <laughs> that's so mean. But also, I guess that's like the double edged sword of I don't know, I guess being romantically interested in someone who is creative because uh, you can't love someone and not love the things that they create. Yeah, I think I could not last with uh, a guy or a girl. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't last with them if I didn't, you know, thoroughly enjoy slash respect the things that they put out there into the world. Um, so yeah, anyways, Kurt Vonnegut says that we should all take a moment to be creative, even if what we're creating is ultimately garbage, uh, just for the sake of creation and generating things. Because I guess the things that I have sat down and said here, I don't think I would have thought about them in that way had I just like, you know, continued on about my day and sat at Baker and worked on my calculus textbook that I'm writing. Um, yeah, so I think slowing down to just find time to create something is, is good for the soul. There you go. That's my Marcus Aurelius moment. But I guess it's not my own observation. It's Kurt Vonnegut's. But I read it. So therefore, I've co-opted it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. There's this other section of uh, the same book, uh, No Man's Country. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, where he talks about going to the post office and how like uh, every day his wife will tell him like, or every time he has to send out mail, his wife will ask him, why do you insist on going to the post office? You can order um, like a ton of postage stamps and just have them pick it up. Like, why do you insist on, I guess, taking this extra responsibility onto yourself? And he just tells her, uh, I don't mind it. I like walking. 
And so every time he has to send mail out, Kurt Vonnegut would walk to the post office and it was the same attendant every time. It was this young woman. I don't actually remember her physical description, but I remember Kurt Vonnegut talked about how beautiful she was and a lot of it had to do with her sense of style. Maybe I'm making this up, but it could have been like something with her earrings or just the way that she dressed. Oh, I think there was something about like the lips, the shade of the lipstick that she was wearing one time. And, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's an older guy at this point. He's like 87, he's 82. He has a wife. And I really enjoyed the way that he talked about the woman because it wasn't necessarily like sexual. Like he definitely did acknowledge that like, she was beautiful. And I, I don't think Kurt Vonnegut would have passed up the option to kiss her, but he was just admiring her. And it felt like a purer form of admiration. Um, I think because he wasn't just thinking about, oh, she's beautiful the way that a painting can be beautiful. He was thinking about like her as an individual. And so um, how the attendant wakes up every morning, she puts, I guess, a lot of care into her appearance. You know, when you're, I've recently learned since I started using lipstick um, that outlining your lips does matter and you can end up looking like a clown inadvertently. Um, so yeah, just sort of taking the care to, I guess, look at yourself in your vanity, having that precision, that patience. Also just like the act of putting an outfit together, right? And so knowing that like, oh, the belt that I'm using today has like a silver buckle. So I'll use silver jewelry today or just something like that, something that small. And so thinking about an individual and the conscious decisions that they make in the morning when they're getting ready for the day and Kurt Vonnegut is taking the time to appreciate that the attendant does that every morning. And I feel like maybe this is a hot take, but Makeup is definitely not something that you do for yourself. Makeup is definitely a performance. Um, makeup, I guess, like a like a limit, you know, you're trying to approach some sort of ideal, right? Mascara is meant to like make your eyes wider. Um, the blush you put on your cheeks, I think it's like biologically supposed to mimic the flush of orgasm. And so like there, there is definitely some performance to when you wear makeup. I don't think that means makeup is a bad thing. I mean, there's performance in what you wear and also just like the way that you behave. I, I don't think performance is a bad thing. Maybe that's a hot take. Uh, but anyways, yeah. And so, yeah, Kurt Vonnegut's recognition of the technical skill that it takes and also the thought that it takes. And he's just sort of appreciating that about her. And I can't remember his exact words, but he says something about like thanking her for for I guess bless not blessing regular people, but I guess um, imparting this gift upon the masses, and the gift is her appearance. And obviously, you know, if you get to know her, it's her personality too, and her experiences, and who she is as an individual. But I mean, obviously in a day you can't stop and talk to everyone and try to get like a thorough analysis of their being and so in this act of just going out into the world and looking nice she's sort of giving a gift to the world you know um and so in that chapter Kurt Vonnegut is just appreciating it and I thought it was very sweet I don't know it made me rethink 
just the way that I get up in the morning and the way that I get ready. Like, for example, today I went to bed very, very late and I woke up, the goal was 6.50. I woke up closer to 7.30. Yeah, yeah, I woke up at 7.30. And I have have a 9L and I had a ton of work to do in the morning, so I just did not have time for makeup. And I put on sweatpants and I put on a shirt and then I realized, oh, crud. Between my 10A and my 3A, I'm going to have to interview two Dartmouth professors. And I feel like interviewing them in mint-colored sweatpants is probably not the move. And so I I changed. I changed into, I've got these plaid yellow pants on. I have a crop top. Oh, my God. I hate this shirt. <laughs> it's, um, it's a Shein shirt. I did not buy it. Um, my friend Alina bought it. I slept over at her house and borrowed it, and she borrowed my shirt, and I just, I left for Dartmouth before I could have a chance to to return it to her, so she got to keep my shirt, and I have this really ugly shirt. It has an angel on it, and then the caption underneath it is, I don't care. Uh, also not very professional, also probably not the thing to wear to an interview, or I guess you're interviewing the person. Anyways, uh, after my government class, which is my 10A, I run to the restroom and <laughs> I turn the shirt, not inside out, but like backwards. And so the side with the tag is now on the front um, because the back is just like a plain pastel yellow. And now it's on the front. So I don't have that ugly, I don't care text. Um, and then I put my jacket over it and that's how I did my interview. But I didn't have time to do any makeup. Um, and so I don't know, I feel like I look a little bit rough today. Not my worst, I guess. My skin is being a little bit nice to me. We don't have any massive breakouts. Um, I'm sure this is also interesting. Um, But yeah, just Kurt Vonnegut and the way that he considers the care that people put into their appearance. I definitely respect that. Oh man, I've probably been talking for half an hour. And that's just my first bullet point, CEO of Tangents. Um, Okay, yeah, journal. Oh, I guess with the point, with the appreciation for people who put out different forms of media, right? So like people who have podcasts or blogs or just different things like that. My version of media, I guess, is my journal. It's definitely something that I do for myself. I, (laughs) in this weird, like, maybe a little bit perplexing way. I wish that I could share my journal with the world. I wish that like people could, I guess, get insight into what does a teenage girl think on a, well, not on a day-to-day basis, but like, I guess on an event to event basis. Um, I would hope that that would be interesting for people. Interesting for the right reasons too. Don't be interested in teenage girls for weird reasons. Um, But yeah, I think that's my form of media. I also think it's maybe interesting isn't the word for it, but odd a little bit how whenever I think about my journal, I have to put the the prelude of this is a teenage girl's journal, right? And even when I was writing the description for the show, it was something like if Marcus Aurelius was a teenage girl and just so much of this identity, you know, something that you build for yourself. I have centered it around the identity of being a teenage girl. And it's definitely weird to look 
back on it and realize that today I am 19. I am only going to be a 19 for like the next 11 months now. Yeah, September's wrapping up. So I have a good 11 months left for some good old teenage debauchery. And then after that, I turn 20 and I begin to rot. Actually, no, that's not true. <laughs> I hope that's not true. But um, I don't know. Although I would definitely 180,000 bajillion percent identify as a feminist. I think I have these very like twisted ideas that I don't apply to other women, but I definitely apply to myself. And so whenever I make jokes like that, like, oh, I'll begin to rot as soon as I turn 20. It, uh, it's a little bit true. <laughs> I feel that it's true sometimes. Like rationally, I can recognize that it's not, but on like, a, it's dark and I'm writing in my journal um, way I feel that it's true sometimes. Yeah, anyways, just the realization that I am not going to be 19 forever. I'm not going to be a teen forever. One morning I will wake up and I will be 20 years old and then eventually 30 and then 40. And, you know, there's no defeat in aging, but I can feel myself sound defeated whenever I talk about it. Rationally, I know that that's not true, but uh, just thinking about it feels a little bit like a defeat. Um, there's this podcast that I listened to, Binchtopia, and um, on one episode they talked about, uh, what was it? It's a graph where you chart Leonardo DiCaprio on one axis, and then on the other, it's uh, whoever his romantic partner is at the time, um, and then you chart their ages against each other. And it's interesting to see that while Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, keeps aging, the person that he dates, usually he starts dating them between the ages of 20 and 21. And then by the time they become 24 or 25, they'll break up. And it's just kind of interesting to, I guess, see that like constant fluctuation of the age of the woman that he keeps around, whereas his age just progresses. Um, and so, and also just like in movies too, like romantic interests, uh, in the early 2000s, there was definitely like Kate Hudson, Drew Barrymore, um, Selma Hayek. Yeah, I'd, I'd say she counts. Um, I'm forgetting the biggest one, Julia Roberts. Um, there's another one. She's in the proposed Sandra Bullock. Yeah, so you would definitely see, oh, Meg Ryan too, back in, uh, back when Andy, yeah, was okay. Anyways, uh, so you have all of these women who are, uh, I guess, very well established in the romantic comedy, I guess, field of movies. And then you'll see rom-coms that come out now, and they're definitely not like the leading ladies. All leading ladies in rom-coms are like under the age of 30, I would say, definitely under the age of 30. Um, and it's just because you don't see women about, I mean, you don't see movies about women that are older than 30, maybe 40. You definitely are not getting into the 50s, 60s territory. Um, whereas, like, with men, that's not true. I mean, think about uh, The Irishman just came out. Uh, Robert De Niro had a huge role in that. And you just don't see roles like that existing for women of a certain age. And so it's definitely wrong, right? But it's a phenomenon that you can point out and you can see it. And so when the culture around you shows you images of women 
that are all under the age of 30 and refuses to show you an alternative, refuses to show you um, someone aging, specifically a woman, then you sort of internalize this idea that you can't get past a certain age. You have to, I guess, do anything in your power to stop the aging process, right? And you can even think about like, what is it called? Like those predatory ads, uh, especially like L'Oreal and stuff they'll put out and it's like, oh, age rewind or this will be good for you, right? And I know that like, I guess makeup is like predominantly like a female driven industry as far as like, you know, the consumers um, or I guess female identifying people. Um, but still, it's it's just tough to... I guess, grow up with all of that around you, having, seeing all these commercials about how to look younger, how to get baby soft skin, um, seeing movies with women only of certain ages, you know, growing up like that, you do internalize this idea that you cannot age, you have to be a teenage girl forever. Um, I think that's definitely true for myself. I, like I said, I have, co-opted the idea of being a teenage girl so thoroughly into my identity that like whenever I was writing the description for this and I didn't end up writing Marcus Aurelius as a teenage girl I launched into <laughs> full crisis mode and I was like ah I'm aging what is this um so yeah those are I guess my thoughts on aging not thoughts I guess things that I wish I could better yeah um oh and there's also another thing that they say on the binge podcast which i love uh the hosts are eliza flam and julia hava yeah they're terrific you should listen to it you who is not listening um yeah anyways uh julia hava what was he saying Oh yeah, they have this episode, I think it's titled My Old Hag Era. I think it's so fun um, to, I guess, call myself like an old hag or a spinstress. Um, I guess because it's poking fun at the idea of like aging and just being over the, over the hill on that. Um, oh man, I, I think I just like, on my outline, I wrote down my most like problematic ideas, which maybe isn't a good idea to like just say on the air. But I, I actually don't remember where I first heard it. I might have actually first read it on Librex, which is not a good place to get your, I guess, information. But um, I read something about an MRS degree, right? And it's sort of this idea that, like, women go to college uh, not to get more knowledge, but instead to find a husband. And so <laughs> whenever um, I go out with my friend Omar and, like, we spot a cute guy or something, I'll like whisper to him like MRS degree. <laughs> and I don't know, it's just, I I think a lot of it has to do with um, the media that a person consumes, especially at a young age or just um, the culture around them. So like definitely for me, even though I grew up in like a single mother household, there was no, I guess, male like breadwinner. There was still this idea that like, but you do need a man and he will be like the ultimate provider and like the idea of like a woman making more than her partner in a relationship um, is sort of just unspeakable, right? Um, these aren't my thoughts. These are just, I guess, things that were inculcated to me from a young age. Um, 
And so I think that's why the MRS degree joke, it is so hurtful to me. But also, I think whenever something's hurtful, I co-opt it and I have to spin it into a joke, which is like, I guess the same theory with like being afraid of not being a teenage girl and then co-opting like this joke of being an old spinstress or in my old hag era, um, right? Because I have to spin it into some sort of joke. Uh, yeah, let's see. Oh, I guess another thing I was going to talk about was my uh, Gov6 class. It's philosophy and um, philosophy and government. And so I think it's interesting that we are about three weeks into the class and at two different occasions, two different men have apologized for mansplaining, which like, for reference, that's never happened to me before. Like no one, I don't think, has ever said the term mansplaining outside of the internet, for me at least. Um, for reference, I'm from Dallas, Texas. But uh, yeah, so these two different guys apologize for mansplaining. I'll set the scene for you. The first one, um, it was during a small group discussion, four people turned their chairs in. And um, I think Professor Murphy had asked, uh, about any similarities we saw between R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings and the Ring of Ganges' myth. And uh, I'm semi-familiar with Lord of the Rings. Like, I definitely watched it when I was nine years old because my older brother made me. I don't know how much of it I picked up. Honestly, I didn't realize that, like, so much of Lord of the Rings was so, I guess, philosophical, but in a way it is. Um, anyways... Yeah, I don't have a ton of familiarity with Lord of the Rings. I think I have just enough to skate by. Like, I, I can point out Gandalf. Uh, I know that Smeagol and Gollum are the same guy. Frodo. Uh, who else is there? Bilbo Baggins. Um, oh, there's, like, trolls, right? Or something? No, they're, like, ogres. Oh, oh, oh. Um, there's also like a volcano and has an eyeball. There's elves too. Okay, nobody wants to hear me breaking down Lord of the Rings because I really don't know what I'm talking about. But anyways, point is, I feel that I have enough knowledge to skate by. Um, the only other girl in our group, uh, she just like flat out said, I have no familiarity with Lord of the Rings. Honestly, I should have admitted that too, but I am petty and I am stubborn and I refuse to say that. Anyways, um, this guy launches into like a full in-depth exploration of uh, the plot of Lord of the Rings. And he's going on, I don't think he talked for that long, honestly, probably under two minutes. Um, I wasn't really listening. I was tuned out because I, sorry, R.R. Tolkien, I just don't care about Lord of the Rings. But um, I tuned back in whenever he says, oh man, I'm totally mansplaining here. My bad, I apologize. Like, you don't want to know this. And then the girl's like, no, but I do want to know this, like, for the purposes of the assignment. Um, and I I just thought it was very, is meta the right word here to hear a guy say something like that? Um, well, like I said, I'd never heard it before. It, I guess it's like the self-awareness, but also how it doesn't really fit the situation because I guess in my opinion, I wouldn't say that he was mansplaining. I think especially because... Um, you know, the other girl in my group had asked for an explanation. And so I guess it's just, 
odd to see, I don't know, someone, I guess, self-policing their mansplaining to the point where they are apologizing when they haven't actually engaged in mansplaining. And I guess it's the same guys that will apologize for mansplaining who are not the perpetrators of mansplaining. Um, so yeah, on to the second occasion. Uh, I was working on this, it was a debate whether Plato was a feminist or not. Guess which approach I took. I, 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 in all debates, I take the approach that I disagree with, especially academic ones, because it makes researching easier. Um, anyways, yeah, I initially didn't believe that Plato was a feminist. I, if you want to know my final thoughts on it, I thought that he was a sexist proponent of feminist ideas, <laughs> which is uh, a little bit of a contradiction there. Um, okay, yeah. Anyways, I'm working on this debate. I'm sitting um, in the lobby, and um, I was working on a point. I can't remember what it was about, but I essentially asked the question, um, what's the difference between an attorney and a lawyer? And I prefaced it by saying, this is probably a stupid question. Um, anyways, he uh, launches into this explanation of the difference between an attorney and a lawyer. I actually don't know if I'm solid on that. Um, I believe an attorney can practice in a court of law, whereas like a lawyer doesn't necessarily have the ability to do that. Um, so you can have like a tax lawyer who like kind of just consults you on stuff. So they're just very familiar with the law, but not necessarily an authority in a court. Um, anyways, after he gets beyond this explanation, he launches into an explanation, or like he starts to define what the bar exam is, which like, hello, I know what the bar exam is, but I wasn't listening at this point. Like I was already typing away in my little Google doc, proving Plato was a feminist. And then by the time that I tuned back in, he was um, apologizing for mansplaining. And I thought it was the most hilarious thing ever. I think I told him something like, oh, you weren't mansplaining. Like I, I wasn't listening, so you're fine. Um, I think in that occasion, that was definitely mansplaining to probably the heights of mansplaining. Like, just tell me what the bar exam is. Like, I know what it is. But the funny thing is that, like, I'm not insulted by it. I'm, in a weird way, I felt weirder at the apology for mansplaining because, I don't know, just, does he feel the need, I guess, to be like hyper PC with me because of maybe like my appearance as like a Latina woman. I don't know. Um, yeah. And I, I also remember that like I'm working with two white guys on a, a debate about feminism. And so whenever we were defining feminism, um, one of the guys like brought up, like, would you say feminism is equality of outcomes? And as of now, I disagree with that idea. Right. It's just equal opportunity. Um, but anyways, they started talking about like women in STEM and how I guess sometimes there'll be programs that like just, I am doing parentheses because I don't agree with this or believe this, but there are programs that like will discriminate against men or they'll make, I guess, like access accessing things in the STEM field easier for women. And you could say that that's not equality. However, there's a difference between equality and equity, right? And so you can look at children's toys and see how, um, I guess, toys 
marketed towards uh, little boys will be like, I don't know, driven by like counting and math and colors and creativity. I mean, think about Lego sets, right? Like who do you associate Legos with? At least pre 2000s era, it would definitely be little boys and like modeling and definitely all these toys that are educational are marketed towards boys. Whereas like toys for little girls are like, here's a baby doll, go practice being a mother, right? I am saying this to someone who had baby dolls as a child. Um, anyways, yeah. So the educational value in those toys, definitely different. And then those differences only begin to scale up as you get older, right? And so the way that your teachers treat you and the sort of projects that they put you up for, right? And so um, anything that requires art, artistic ability or like care or nurturing dispositions, those go to little girls and like, you know, um, I guess responsibilities that are like being a leader or just doing anything really STEM related, it goes towards little boys. And so all these discrepancies and like the way that um, kids are raised up in the culture, um, it'll, it'll, I guess, push you towards a certain field or push you away from the field. And so that's why you need equity programs that like make it easier for girls to access uh, STEM programs and to access fields like that, because at no other point in their life have they been told, hey, did you know that you are also capable of doing X, Y, Z in this field? Um, and so anyways, whenever he was saying that like, those programs aren't available for boys, and I don't think he was necessarily saying that it was unfair, but he was just saying that like, it's not feminist, because it's not quality. I, I like rolled my eyes <laughs> and I was just like, I don't want to dislike the people that I'm working um, on this project with. So I, I just kind of like said, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's related to the topic. Um, and I think we should move away from this because I think you're going to say something that you may regret later on. <laughs> um, and like to the guy's merit, he did. We pushed away from that. We didn't bring it up. I removed it from one of the speeches. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, sorry, got an email. Um, okay, yeah, what is it saying? Yeah, just men mansplaining and then apologizing for mansplaining is all very new, all very meta to me. I do think it's funny that it's only happened in my government class and my yeah, my math three and my writing five have been chill. Um, I don't think anyone has been the culprit of mansplaining. I will say something that like I recognized in my writing five class the other day. Um, there, I think it's, there's maybe like six girls and 10 guys probably. It's like a majority guy class. It's on um, the internet, surveillance, privacy, data management, that kind of stuff. Anyways, um, I think some guy had made this pretty cool point about like everyone always is focused on growth right and we just accept that growth is a in the direct in a positive direction right um whereas like sometimes you don't need innovation and sometimes you don't need growth like things are fine as is and in trying to progress further you're just progressing i guess on a downward trajectory and you're um, just digging yourself in a hole that's much deeper um and so he talked about like, uh, 
you talked about socialism in Latin America and um, how it got sabotaged uh, by the U.S. in the 60s and um, how, I guess, the Latin American uh, fundamentals of socialism weren't, uh, I guess, aiming at, like, technological advancement. It was kind of, like, returning to, I guess, previous um, organization models. And uh, to push back on this, um, this girl raised her hand and she made this really, like, I, I can't paraphrase it. It was just very well-spoken. And it was this point about how, um, how in Latin American countries that uh, were engaging in socialism, um, so I, think, I think she referenced Chile or Brazil. Um, I think it was Chile. That um, sometimes the, the bureaucracy of trying to start up a business would take up like a year or two. Um, and so that's obviously not conducive to good economic planning. And so people would uh, engage in like businesses that were extra legal, so not necessarily illegal, but just like, I guess, not related to the government um, because the government was so cogged up uh, with all this like bureaucratic red tape. And she made this like incredibly good point. And after like, give, like she cited things, she gave like the name of the country, she gave like even examples of like the bureaucratic red tape after giving this entire and she was so confident when she was saying it too like i don't know does anyone ever make like a comment in class and you just have to like just sit in awe of them because they really know what they're talking about anyway she makes this really terrific comment and then like not a second goes by and she says but i don't really know i don't know maybe that's just what i think i don't know <laughs> like she just like undercuts her entire spiel by saying but i don't really know and it's like, you have clearly done the research, you've read the articles, you're familiar with the material, you're familiar with this material in a way that nobody else in the class is, yet you feel the need to undercut what you've just said. And I definitely am uh, guilty of this. I do do it to some extent. Um, and so, yeah, just like the way that... Um, women will sometimes like undercut what they've said. It's so sad to see because you're very capable. Um, yeah. Anyways, yeah. So at the same time that you have men apologizing for mansplaining, you then start to also see uh, women who apologize essentially for knowing things. Um, and it's definitely, I guess, a weird dynamic to see in a classroom environment. Okay. Um, let's see, I have eight minutes left. Can't believe I talked for this long. I mean, I guess I didn't start on time because I was sneezing and doing sound checks and meowing. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, I guess I could talk about my article for the fee. Um, so whenever I was applying to Dartmouth, I wrote, um, that like 100 word um, supplement where that's like, what do you see yourself doing at Dartmouth? That kind of stuff. Um, I could probably find it really quick. Maybe I could be a liar. No, I found it. Okay. So yeah. So the prompt was, please respond in 100 words or fewer. As you seek admission to the class of 2025, what aspects of the college's program community or campus environment attract your interest? And then my response to that was, 
The oldest tree on campus, an elm tree dating back as far as 1870, has watched the world around it evolve, just as we, humans, have watched its foliage change colors, fall, and grow back again. At Dartmouth, I envision myself sitting below its verdant canopy, drafting an opinion piece on climate change policy for America's oldest newspaper, the Dartmouth. Once finished, I can switch gears and work on a poem for, the Dartmouth, for Dartmouth's In Your Face zine, which aims to celebrate historically marginalized voices. Ultimately, it is Dartmouth's reverence for tradition and embrace for change that has captured my interest. And it is insane because exactly, like almost exactly one year later, I am working, my first piece for the Dartmouth will be on climate change. Uh, while I'm not working on the In Your Face scene, I actually don't think I even saw them at the club fair. Um, I am hopefully going to also be writing for Spare Rib. And so it's just, insane that like I I didn't know what I was doing a year ago but the things that I said I would be doing I am now doing them today and so um yeah so my first piece is about the IPCC report um and how it will have local ramifications for the upper valley and so I did an interview with Sarah Brock from Vital Communities which is this local nonprofit, um, she works on like the Solarize Hanover and just Solarize the Upper Valley in general. Um, she talked to me about like green real estate, which didn't, I don't know, it, it the definition wasn't intuitive to me, but then once she like started explaining it, it definitely made a lot more sense. Um, and yeah, something about me, I guess, has always been that I definitely have a need to like be busy all the time and doing something. And I haven't had any schedule conflicts yet at Dartmouth until today. Um, I had to be at two places at one time. I had to be conducting two different interviews with two different professors at the same time. And ultimately I just couldn't get to it. And so I ended up shooting an email. I'm probably going to have to do one more interview today after my uh, writing five class. I enjoy doing the interviews. I'm nervous because each of them are about like 30 minutes long. This will be my fourth interview, so I'll take an hour and 20 minutes of material to cut through. And then it is a 4,000-page report, which, like, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to read 4,000 pages of that report. I'm sorry to the United Nations. Um, I, like, definitely skimmed through it. Actually, my, my uh, I guess, procedure was I hit Control-F, and I looked up Northern Hemisphere, and I saw how it would specifically affect the Northern Hemisphere, um, and that was just my procedure. But anyways, um, seeing, hitting control F and seeing how many times Northern Hemisphere appears in that document is just earth shattering for me. It's 512 times, which like, I don't know, just looking at all the models, I, this was one of my questions that I asked the professors, it was about climate pessimism and how do you deal with that? Um, because sometimes like, like, even when I'm explaining to someone what I'm going to be writing about, I'm like, haha, the IPCC report, it's about how we're all going to die. Like, <laughs> I seriously need to stop making these, like, really reductive, shitty jokes. Um, I do them anyways, because, yes, this is who I am, but I really shouldn't. Um, but, yeah, I think I am definitely also guilty of climate pessimism and just feeling, like, so at the mercy of everyone on Capitol Hill and feeling that I have no impact. Like, I mean, yes, you could argue that you can vote, but honestly voting only goes so far, especially in a state like Texas, um, which is like historically red state. 
unfortunately we couldn't flip it this past election and so just knowing that like there's all these bumbling people running around Capitol Hill who like are supposed to be making policy to save this planet and it again just gets caught up in like bureaucratic red tape or honestly it's just um like divisions along party lines that stop people from wanting to work together um, to actually, you know, save this planet and make it a home for future generations. I don't know, sometimes you can feel a little bit helpless. I think talking to different professors and even local nonprofits have definitely helped with that. Um, something that they all said was like, uh, just like starting locally and knowing that like any change that you can make to like help emit less tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, like at least you've gone that far, right? And so like making sure that you, I don't know, maybe become vegetarian or vegan if that's your if that's your cup of tea uh, to reduce like methane emissions, right? From like the meat industry and like animal uh, or like livestock uh, or taking like public transportation, big proponent of public transit, I love that. Um, so yeah, just like knowing that alone you can't solve climate change, but knowing that you are doing what you can to ameliorate it. Um, yeah. Okay, so this was the first episode of Mediations where I sit in a room and I, I talk to myself about anything that comes to mind. Um, it's kind of interesting to see the trajectory we went on. It was media and then it was a little bit about feminism and then it ultimately ended with climate change which i guess is most things yeah that is the big challenge for our generation it's 2 p.m i don't know if someone comes on after me um but this is me signing off mediations is really fun see you next week uh one to two bye